All right, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 to 42. And then David will come up and speak to us. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Well, if you look at the trail of Christianity through history, there's lots of ways you can describe it. But one way that would be quite appropriate is that it's a very bloody trail. And it's bloody because Jesus has never been comfortable or acceptable in our world. When faithfully proclaimed as God's King and Savior, he challenges uh, that which is actually hardwired into every single person. That is what we call um, personal sovereignty. We just naturally believe that we're competent to run our own life apart from God. And so when we speak of Jesus, then we're automatically on a collision course with individuals around us and our society at large. It can't be any other way. We're a threat. As we speak about Jesus, we become a threat. Jesus is a threat to how people think, to how people live. And as a result of that, then, generally speaking, Christians have not been welcomed or accepted as the message of Jesus has not been welcomed or accepted. And, and generally speaking, when you look back through history, generally speaking, you would have to say that the lives of Christians who are seriously committed to Jesus and serving Jesus and speaking about Jesus, you'd have to say their lives have not been comfortable or peaceful. Now, I suspect that's not how most of us think about our week to come, is it? Because, you see, I think generally in our day and age, generally we think that having sorted out a relationship with God, being a Christian is about getting on with life, enjoying the things that life has to offer us, the comforts, the leisure, the pleasure, the possessions. Now, we might actually qualify that a little bit when talking to somebody who might say, well, we expect 
from time to time that uh, people will attack our faith in Jesus. But it's that sort of magnitude. The prevailing view, I think, is that we expect being Christians is an enjoyable life, perhaps even a comfortable life, albeit with that relationship with God sorted out. My friends, I think what that means as we, as we move into this passage, I think what it means is that we're really ill-prepared to hear these words this morning. Perhaps even worse, perhaps we're even reluctant to hear these words this morning. Because they detail out, as James already opened up for us, they detail out hostility, division, suffering that serving Jesus will bring right into even those most personal and intimate relations, relationships. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going, to, I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer that the Lord might help us impact on these verses and these verses to impact on us, given that they're talking about selflessness when we're so hardwired to be selfish. So join with me now in prayer just as we move into these verses. Uh, Lord, we are ill-prepared to hear the challenge of these verses, perhaps even reluctant. We are naturally inclined to self-interest, and yet these verses call us uh, to your interest and our selflessness. So, Lord, we need you to go before us. We need you to open these words to our minds, and open our minds to these words and change us from the inside out. Amen. Okay, as usual, uh, before we get into the detail of the text, I want to do some revision just to keep these chapters together from chapter 9, verse 35, through to chapter 10, verse 33. We're working on this section that stands together. Uh, Jesus, back in nine, chapter 9, verse 35, likened his mission to the work of harvesting. So preaching the gospel is harvesting. He's the Lord of the harvest. And he invites his disciples to share in this exciting mission, in his exciting mission, and indeed share in the bumper harvest that he said would be there. Then in chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples as harvest workers or mission partners. And chapter 10 then is essentially talking his disciples through the practical challenges and difficulties they might expect to encounter. There's a cost in being harvesters. And as we work, work through chapter 10, we see that cost steadily ramping up. Initially, verses 5 through to 15, uh, any opposition seemed sort of general, impersonal, remote. So Jesus sends them out and talks about them being, going into a village. If you go into a village or into a house, it's out there. It's just, it's just out there. And he says that you can expect there would be random people in random villages showing disinterest. That's where we start in, in those verses sort of 10 through 15. And then in last week we saw verses 16 to 33, it ramps up. Jesus prepares them for much more challenging scenarios. And Jesus says, as they proclaim the gospel of Jesus, they should expect initial opposition and disinterest 
to become persecution, violent persecution. You should expect loss of freedom, loss of reputation, ridicule, false accusations, and in the most extreme cases, death. And last week, as I tried to uh, open up this idea of Jesus' perspective on the cost of being harvesters, I used the idea of a cost-benefit analysis as, as, as Jesus prepared his disciples for what lay ahead. And so uh, the costs are real, says Jesus, but the eternal benefits of identifying with Jesus, of keeping our eyes on him, seeing, seeing through our circumstances to our Savior and the Lord of the harvest behind our circumstances, though the benefits of that move us from fear to freedom, move us from reluctance to see opportunity to minister and stand with Jesus, from fear to excitement in the mission with Jesus. Now, with that background, let's step into these confronting verses in verse 32, but mainly kicking into verse 34 for a start. And the cost ramps up even further. Jesus here is warning that the greatest cost is likely to be experienced in our most personal and valued relationships. The greatest cost is likely to be felt closest to home, in other words. At verse 34, here's where it starts to open up the gap between where we are and between what Jesus says. See, as Christians, we're determined to believe that Jesus' gospel or message will bring peace and happiness and well-being to our lives. I mean, we're just starting to move into that silly season of Christmas, and that's what we're starting to hear. You know, peace and goodwill to all men. Quietly, I think, as Christians, we're committed to and demand from the Lord hassle-free lives. And we see that as so fundamental to being Christians. Well, Jesus says the opposite. Allegiance to him, allegiance to his gospel of salvation, says Jesus, inevitably results in conflict. Now, we need to read this very, very carefully in today's modern society. Jesus is not inciting people to violence. That's, that's not his point here at all. His point is that people when they're confronted with him as Savior and Lord and conf confronted with his gospel, they will not easily give up their own personal sovereignty. There will need to be a struggle for that to happen. People will push back at anybody who threatens their personal self-sovereignty. Jesus himself, back from the Sermon on the Mount, is the ultimate peacemaker. But when you think of Jesus like a surgeon who comes, as patient comes and his body is ravaged by cancer, how is the surgeon going to bring peace into that body, if I can use that sort of metaphor? Well, he has to take that patient into a place of more pain, more suffering, through surgery. There can be no shortcutting of that. The pathway to peace and health is suffering. That is the way Jesus the peacemaker 
brings his peace into our lives and in the lives of people around us. Verses 35, 30, 37 then. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Even as we start to read these verses, we start to think, this is obscene. And yet these are the words of Jesus. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The gospel of Jesus polarizes people. The most painful divisions, the greatest hostility, the most heartbreaking suffering will surface closest to home, in our closest, most personal relationships, when we share that Jesus is God's king to be obeyed, God's savior without whom nobody gets to heaven. If we share that, even our closest relationships will be under severe pressure. And even then, Jesus calls us to absolute loyalty, choosing relationship with him over any other relationship, any other relationship. And accepting, in practical terms, that sometimes when we want to speak the gospel to those we love most, who are closest to, they actually will become enemies. We will become enemies to them. So much will they hate what we're saying to them, even though what we say to them is driven by our love for them. Verse 38. As harvesters working for Jesus, we must be totally selfless. That idea that Jen's already opened up helpfully. Uh, carrying the cross. Most days when you hear Christians, it's just used as a turn of phrase when you're speaking to lots of Christians. Oh, yes, I'm, I have a cross to carry. That is, there's particular unpleasant circumstance in my, in my week this week or, or, or something like that. That's what carrying a cross is. But not so in Jesus' day. When you carried your cross, you had already been sentenced to death. So to carry your cross is to act as one whose life has already been forfeited to somebody else. Totally selfless. Disciples are to demonstrate, we disciples are to demonstrate our total commitment to Jesus and his cause, even if necessary, walking away from the most treasured relationships in our lives. Man, that's a big call, isn't it? That's huge. And it's huge simply because treasured relationships are exactly as they say. Treasured relationships. And yet that's what Jesus calls us to. Verse 39 cuts even deeper. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Another sort of proverbial type phrase. But I think it's this. I think Jesus is saying, look, there's two choices and only two choices. Either 
we will be committed to building our own kingdom. That's the self-sovereignty thing again. Building our own kingdom, our own secure and comfortable life in this world, which will mean that we need to make peace with this world. And in a sense, approximate something of the values and philosophies of those around us in order to be peaceful and acceptable among them. So we can go that way. So we can sort of find a life, says Jesus, but ultimately we'll lose it. Or the alternative is, we will be committed to building his kingdom by speaking the gospel of Jesus as God's savior and king. And accept the cost involved in that. Now, there's no way to sugarcoat those verses. They're confronting. And they force a confronting question for each one of us. So go back to the idea of cost-benefit analysis that we talked about last week. What will these details mean for your cost-benefit analysis of serving Jesus? It's quite possible that for some here this morning, these verses would be a deal-breaker. Giving up those relationships most valuable to me, closest to me, is just too much to ask. Or is it still a good decision to serve Jesus, getting involved in this mission with ever-increasing costs? And so maybe in your mind you're saying, could any person in their right mind be prepared for the intense personal cost of giving up the closest and most precious of relationships, family relationships or close friends, for the sake of spreading the gospel of Jesus? Could anybody in their right mind say, yep, I'm up for that? Continuing from last Sunday, the theme that I used, what sort of gospel perspective could enable us to go down this pathway? And I tell you, it needs to be a gospel perspective. Nothing else will take us down that pathway. But what gospel perspective could possibly take us down that pathway? Well, I want to suggest two. The first one there, if if you see your outline in front of you, being clear about family relationships ultimate family and temporary family. Now, as I said last week, Jesus is sending his disciples out to do something so new, so different, so dangerous to anything they'd ever experienced. And so, in a sense, throughout these two chapters, Jesus is saying, look, the key thing is, keep your eyes on me. Keep looking at me. See through the circumstances that are going to come to you and see me, the Lord of the harvest, behind those circumstances. That's a gospel perspective. It's, it's the great faith that, that Jesus commended back in chapters 8 and 9 when we looked at some of the miracles, which was the ability of people who came to Jesus asking for healing and asking for Jesus' blessing. It was the ability to see through this man that stood in front of them to see the Lord of the universe who had power to heal, to renew. 
So my friends, this is the gospel perspective we will need. When it comes to rejection and opposition and enmity from those that once we treasured and valued as closest to us, being able to look through that rejection and hatred from those closest to us is so hard. Of course it's hard. Because to be human is to crave love, to crave acceptance, to, to have somebody reciprocate our, our, our love and actions towards them, to belong, to be in a lasting relationship, to be in a secure relationship without fear of rejection. All those things are just so fundamental to us as humans. So what could possibly enable us to give those things up or walk away from them? Well, we need to remember that our ultimate, lasting family relationship is in God. I said last week that being a, a disciple is identifying with God, and that's true. But far more important is that God identifies with me, his disciple. Because that's my security. That is the relationship I crave for in my innermost being. That is the unbreakable relationship which, which can be enjoyed without fear. That's the relationship that gets on, keeps on getting better and will keep on getting better until I go to heaven to be with him forever and enjoy the fullness of that relationship in a way that I can't even begin to imagine now. That is in my heart of hearts the relationship Sorry, that is the relationship I crave in my heart of hearts. And it's, and it's mine in Christ. This relationship is essentially with God in Trinity and underpins everything Jesus is saying in, verse, in chapter 10. If you look at chapter nine, 29, sorry, verse 29 through to, uh, 32, we looked at this passage, these verses last week. God is my Father. And He cares for me deeply as His child. For every aspect of me as I serve Him. Jesus has dealt with my sin. He's made me acceptable to my Father who has adopted me into His family. Making Jesus like a brother to me. So God the Father, Jesus my brother. And Jesus gladly identifies with me before the Father. He's happy to acknowledge when we stand with him, he will stand with us. That's what brothers do in the ideal world. Verse 25, you go back to one of the verses we looked at last week. Uh, it talks about how they will be treated just like the master because in the same household. This is what the family treatment will be, says Jesus. It's an affirmation of family, likeness, and belonging. And it reassures, it reassures his disciples, even in the midst of what seems like negative, um, he reassures them that, yes, when they experience rejection and opposition and hatred, then, yay, that's confirmation that they're in the family of Jesus, in a sense. Uh, verses 21 and 22 uh, go back further. We looked at those again last week as well. Uh, when, when you're under pressure, when you're hauled up before the courts, don't worry about what to speak because your Father will give you what to speak through the Holy Spirit. And there we have it. The Trinity 
working for us, with us, as family. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence with me. The Holy Spirit, we're told in other parts of the Scripture, daily renovates me from the inside out. In a, in a sense, you can talk of the Holy Spirit like new DNA when we become Christians. And that new DNA is slowly working through all my body and renewing me spiritually. Helping me express the mind of Christ in the most difficult of circumstances. My friends, this is the family we belong to in Christ. This is a family like no other family. And all of this helped me to remember that my identity and security is not tied to my human relationships, no matter how personal and how treasured they might, they might be to me. Now, sadly, many, many Christians get it wrong at this point. Many Christians act as though family, human family relationships or other close personal friendships are permanent, are absolute, are ultimate. In other words, that they are so important to life that they're to be protected against everything else. So these are my fixed points in life. I'll give up all that out there, but no, these family relationships, I need them. That's a wrong statement for Christians. We might desire them, we might love them and enjoy them, but we don't need them in Christ. The problem with that thinking is that we become flexible at the wrong points. We become flexible in our service and testimony to Jesus because well, I don't want to risk these intensely personal friendships, relationships. So we become flexible about Jesus and our relationship with him and inflexible about our relationships. See how that's out of kilter? Now, I've got to say here carefully, or I've got to say here, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. Anyway, th this is not a license to be careless or heartless or irresponsible or disengaged in this world human family relationships. That, that would be a terrible way to understand Scripture. So it's not a license to step away from human family relations. It's a safeguard against making these relationships absolute and therefore being devastated or debilitated when gospel conflict surfaces in them. So, as disciples of the great peacemaker, we too are peacemakers. But just as Jesus' pathway to delivering peace meant rejection by his human family, and remember that Jesus' human family first came to see what he was up to because they were a bit embarrassed by what he was saying and doing, then down the track a little bit, their embarrassment changed to outright anger. They thought he had lost it. So the pathway of Jesus delivering peace meant rejection by his human family and ultimately suffering and death. So too, our sharing in his mission of true peace and renewal 
will reflect Jesus' pathway. Now, friends, this is hard for us to hear, is it not? So often we have secured peaceful relations in our families and workplace and with our friends simply because we've played down our loyalty to Jesus and we've played down the message of Jesus. Perhaps we've been silent about that which we say is at the heart of our being because we've not wanted to risk those friendships that are fun or intense or, or personal or immediate. So often I think we protest that, that we don't have the opportunity to stand publicly with Jesus and the gospel or, or that we don't have the ability to say anything worthwhile. We often try and excuse ourselves for that when in fact perhaps the reason is slightly different. Perhaps the reason is that we're not prepared to risk those friendships that mean most to us. Perhaps we're not prepared to risk division and hostility creeping into those friendships that we value so much. Now, friends, don't, don't misunderstand me. We should never relish or look for hostility in a fight. There's never a license to be that annoying Christian member of the family at family gatherings who just won't shut up. There's never an excuse for that. And we all have them. I might even be the one in my family, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but, but there's no excuse for that. We're, ne we're never looking for hostility in a fight with unbelievers. But neither should we back away from telling them, those closest to us, of their need for a fresh start in Jesus. I mean, by definition, if, if they're a close friend, that means you love them. And if you love them, surely you want to tell the truth. To them. And if the truth means confronting their autonomy and sovereignty, their own individual sovereignty, and, and, and talk about bowing to Jesus, then it's a risk, surely, if you love them, it's worth taking. And so perhaps the real reason we're silent is because we put too much value on these relationships and we don't want to risk them. second point is appreciating that we're never without family to enjoy and nurture. We're never without family to enjoy and nurture. Now, I have to say these last few verses are not easy to understand, but here's what I think they might mean. So you look at verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. I think that's a principle perhaps that Jesus, sort of a proverbial principle that then Jesus expands in the next uh, two verses. And I think it goes something like this. In, in Jesus' day, it was assumed that a person's representative would be received, welcomed, and assisted as if the person themselves where they are present. So if you want to put it in the family context we're talking about here, a, a, a person's representative, in a sense, was just an extension of the family and was to be treated like family. And I think that principle of family connectedness 
might be at the heart of verses 40 to 42. As disciples busy in the work of harvesting or proclaiming the gospel in a myriad situations and circumstances, we will constantly intersect with other disciples doing exactly the same work for exactly the same reasons and bearing exactly the same costs. And we'll intersect with them and their joy and delight in Jesus and we'll intersect with them in their desire that others might hear of Jesus and know the salvation that we ourselves have experienced. I think the picture there Jesus is saying is that we are never without family. And in fact, as disciples, we're engaged in core family business. And so we will actually have a much bigger family to be part of than anything we could possibly be imagine at, at the human level. We are engaged in the core family business. We all know and enjoy God as our Father. We all have a rich sense of privilege as siblings of Jesus and joint heirs with Him. We all have the Holy Spirit working quietly behind the scenes to create family likeness in us. And, and in these verses, it's hard to know whether Jesus has got different uh, levels of formality or, or, or different harvest tasks in, in mind. So he uh, talks about a righteous person, he talks about a prophet, and he talks about little ones. I think possibly he's, he's just spelling it out in, in some sort of concrete terms. That regardless of the particular part in the harvest, wherever you intersect disciples busy in the work of harvest, they're all his little ones. They're all to be welcomed, encouraged, supported, enjoyed. The reward that's mentioned in here, well, again, it's really hard to be precise, but the idea, I think, which fits best with the context is simply that embracing the family as they're busy in harvest will win the approval of Christ because this is how God's family should work. That's what family's all about. That's what God's family's all about. If your family gatherings like our family gatherings, you just come back to the same stories, the same themes all the time. I mean, it's funny when you're there with a the family, but somebody else looking in would just think, this is weird. The family has a core definition, a core shape, common stories, common memories. Our spiritual family is the place for us to rest and thrive. And all the more so against the dysfunction and conflict and hostility that will most likely mark our human families and relationships as we are harvesters for Jesus. My friends, put it, boil it all down to something really simple. We're never without family, even when our human family and those closest to us reject us because those we have most in common with as family members are in fact Christ's people. We are never without family to nurture and enjoy. And what a gracious provision that is. And many, many Christians 
have lost all of their family and been totally rejected, totally rejected by their family. But even they are never without family in the Lord Jesus. So which close relationships will claim your primary allegiance? That's the question. Which family, which set of close relationships are you shaped by, defined by, identified with? What, which do you find security in? Which do you give allegiance to? That's the question it boils down to. Will you continue to expect and demand a hassle-free life and conflict-free close personal relationships? Whether family or friends who are hostile to Jesus, even if the cost is not speaking about Jesus to them, is that what you'll continue to hang out for and protect? Or will you sit loose to human family and other relationships knowing that your real family isn't Jesus. If you can do that, then I suspect you will be prepared to take the risk because you want your closest friends to know of the salvation that you've enjoyed and continue to enjoy in Jesus. But it will only be that gospel perspective that will help you step into that place. Pray with me again, please. <clears throat> Lord, I prayed at the start that you would help us hear words that we're not inclined to hear and perhaps even quite reluctant to hear. Lord, we confess to you that we have put our allegiance in wrong places. We have valued human relationships, Lord. Good relationships, important relationships to us, Lord, immediate relationships, but we've valued them too highly. And unfortunately, Lord, the cost has been that we've been silent about you to those we would say we love most. Help us, Lord, to see through our dearest and most personal of relationships to see you, the Lord of the harvest, and help us, Lord, to take risks for those we love most by venturing most in speaking of Jesus to them. And in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much.